event or maybe a concert, there may be something that you've never noticed, but it's actually pretty interesting. The people who are hired to do the security at these big events, can you imagine being at, a, say, the Super Bowl or the National Championship where you've been hired, probably paying you $14 to $20 an hour maybe for security to stand and face the crowd the entire time while everything is going on around you, all the action. And then on top of that, to watch the crowd's reaction as they get excited, as they get disappointed, as a big play happens, and the urge to just to turn around and look, but to know that that's really not part of your job and you shouldn't do that. You should pay attention to what you're there to do. And so if you ever watch these guys, some are better than others, but it's clear that they've been told not to watch the event, but to watch the crowd. That'd be difficult, right? Very difficult. Or think about this. If you've ever been to a place where you've seen someone who's a live model, have you seen those before in malls in New York City in the, in the windows of some of the stores that would have live models? I've seen them more locally at a mall before. And think about standing there modeling the clothes while all the distractions that you would encounter, some accidental and some intentional, right? That some people who walk up to you, their little kids are pinching you on the leg, other people are trying to get your attention. I've done that, right? Trying to get them to stare, look, or, or laugh, tell a joke. And you're doing all these things in order to distract them, but they're there doing their job and trying to stay focused on what they've been hired to do. Well, today as we look at Jesus' prayer in John 17, we see that Jesus is praying for the disciples to be focused in on their task, regardless of the draw of the world around them. And it's difficult. He speaks specifically to the fact that they must stay unified. He prays for their unity because he knows that in this world there will be many distractions, many things happening to pull them away from their task and be distracted to that. He also prays against the enemy who's going to come and literally do more than just pinch your leg and try to distract you. He's going to try to ambush and destroy your life as you're on this task that God has given to you as a disciple of Jesus. And then thirdly, Jesus is going to pray specifically for those who have been sanctified, his 12, it was 11 now, his 11 disciples, that they will be sanctified, set apart for this task, that their job will be paramount in their lives, that everything else around them in culture, in society, that everybody else is getting called up in, that they keep these things in proper perspective as they focus on the job that Jesus has called them to do which is go and make disciples. So today as we look at Jesus' prayer, I hope that you'll think very personally about this for yourself. What is distracting you from your job as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because you may look at Braden and Anaya and think, wow, that's amazing that they're going, that's their job. That's your job too, as Mitch said. And don't think that God holds you to a lesser standard that he holds us to the same standard that we go and we share for his glory and his honor. So the question is, what is distracting or pulling you away from your job as a disciple? So we're going to be back in John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. Let's pray as we look at this passage. Father God, I thank you for the incredible reminder we heard already this morning, just of your calling in our lives, God, how that you put desires in our life to do things for your glory and, and for uh, the good, our good, our joy. 
And God, we see this even with the disciples this morning, that even in the difficulty of what you've called them to do, that you said that they would have joy. And that makes no sense to the world. And God, I pray that you'll help us today to see that we are in this world, but we're not of this world. And God, help us to realize that the things, the shiny things and the distractions and the things that appeal to our own personal appetites, these things are used by the evil one, the enemy, to distract us from what we've been called to do. And pray today that your prayer for your 11 disciples will impact us and we'll remember what our calling is. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said last week, John 17 is a long prayer. We have times in Scripture where Jesus prays, and it says that Jesus prayed, but by far and away, this is the longest and most extensive prayer that we can read by Jesus and see what he said. And it's amazing when you think about what would Jesus say when he prayed, and we get this glimpse into him praying for his 11 disciples. So let's pick back up in verse 6. Last week, Jesus prayed for himself. Today, he prays for his 11 disciples. So he says, I have manifested your name, talking to his father, your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So in spite of the truth that we know, and those who know Scripture and have been to church at all, you know that very, very soon the disciples are going to scatter. They're going to run. Jesus told them. He predicted it. He's not going to be surprised by it. When the pressure comes in this immediate time of his arrest and his crucifixion, they're going to scatter, they're going to run, but Jesus says that he's completed the task for them of revealing the Father to them. And so Jesus looks past the next couple days of what's going to happen and sees the long view. He knows what the disciples are going to accomplish in his name. And we'll get more to that truth in a few minutes, but that's an amazing encouragement because regardless of where you're stuck right now or what's going on in your life right now, if you're a true believer, Jesus is working and he continues to work and propel you through those desires that he gives you within your spirit by the Holy Spirit to serve him and minister to him. But he points out here that these were the disciples that God gave him. Jesus handpicked through God's power, he handpicked his disciples. And so last week we talked at length about election and God choosing. I don't want to go back and revisit all that, go back and listen to the sermon again, but I do think it's important for us once again, especially in light of the fact that I put the wrong verse up last week, to touch on how that, that this is an undeniable gospel reality, how that in the Gospel of John, this idea of election is, is everywhere. In, in verse 37 of chapter 6, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me, they will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What a great assurance that we have. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Spirit, uh, unless the Father draws him. So he uses the Spirit to draw people to Jesus. And so kind of talking about desires again, that those who sit here and you don't know Jesus, and that desire that's in your heart to know Jesus is a desire given to you by God. God is using that to draw you to himself. John 17, 2, since you have been given him, Jesus, since you have given him, Jesus says this about himself, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you, he's talking to God the Father, have given to him. So this reality is again and again showing up in the Gospel of John, but it's very important that we recognize that what we said last week, sovereign election does not contradict nor negate the responsibility of people to repent and trust Jesus 
as their Lord and Savior. I think back to even chapter 1 where he pointed out this tension, where he said right from the beginning of this book, but for as many as received him. So as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even to those who believed on his name, who were born not of the will of flesh, will of man, but by God. And so right from the beginning we see this, there's this receiving. And so I talked about last week how there had to be this tension there's this tension in, in Scripture. In fact, the word that maybe you have never heard before, but is the word that best describes it, is antinomy, which means an apparent incompatibility between two apparent truths. There's this true reality that exists on both hands. I gave an illustration last week, and you can't err too far to one or the other. You have to be kept in balance. So God chose his disciples. He handpicked his disciples. And as far as our perspective on God. God chose us, but we received Jesus and this tension that exists in Scripture. So his, hand, his disciples were handpicked by Jesus, and disciples, he says, are fully equipped for the mission that's ahead of them. Look at verse 7. Now they, knew, now they know, Jesus prays, that everything that you have given me is from you. So even though they don't fully get, the disciples don't get the cross they, Jesus has told them time and time again, here's what's going to happen. But it's so far out of their category, their way of thinking, that they're going to have this lapse in their understanding. They're going to scatter and not get it. But they believe firmly and totally in Jesus as the Messiah. There's no question. Peter answered that question for the disciples. We know you're the Christ. They also believe that Jesus came from God. He was the Son of God. They attested to that fact. They confirmed that fact to Jesus. And they believed that Jesus gave eternal life. They believed these things. So these things are huge to believe. The fact of believing that Jesus was God's Son, we say that, we hear it, it's no big deal for us, we accept that. But think about during their time where they recited every day there is one God. One God. And then Jesus shows up, who we know is not a second God. He is still God in the person of Jesus Christ. But that blew their category. Think about if you were in that situation as a first central century Jew and you had Jesus come on the scene and declare that he was God and he was the son of God, how would you deal with that? You're like, no, 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 no. God is the God of the Old Testament, the God we worship, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. What? So you are God the Father. No, I'm not God the Father. I'm God the Son. So you see how this difficult this would be for them to grasp that? Yet they did grasp that. But the cross, they did not yet fully understand. Verse 8, for I have given them, the disciples, he's praying, the words that you gave me. So he's passed on the words, and they have received them, and come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. And so Jesus, as he's praying, maybe even huddled up with his 11 here, right at the end of his ministry with them, before he dies and, and raises again. He, he's huddled up with them, and they're probably thinking, are we ready for what the future holds? He's, Jesus says they're ready. They're prepared. He's given them everything. And, and they won't feel like they're ready over the next few days, but God is greater than their failures. God is greater because his hand is on them, and his hand is on your life, regardless of what's happened in the past. A few years ago, I read a story about a kid over in Taiwan who was in a museum. 
on a field trip, 12-year-old kid. He's walking through the museum with his classmates. Don't ask me why that this was so nearby that he could do this, but he fell, tripped and fell into a painting worth $1.5 million and punched a hole through the painting. Can you imagine how he felt after that, how his parents felt after that, how just like, you know, the, the pressure that people would have said and put on him because he made such a huge, huge mistake. Yet some of you sit in here and you can relate to that spiritually very much so because you have some major, major failures in your life. And maybe some were as recently as this weekend. But God, in His grace, is redeeming you. And He's going to take these things in your life that you think just cannot be repaired. We can't fix this painting. You know, there's no repairing this painting that's worth this much. We can fix it, but it's it's lost tons of value. But in God's eyes, you've lost no value. In, In the eyes of the world, in the eyes of society, maybe they view you as damaged goods. Maybe when people look at your life, they think, you know what, that person, I I, I just can't trust them because of this or that's happened in their life. But God sees that as an opportunity. And he has specific ministry for you to specific people that maybe those of us who haven't experienced what you've experienced and gone through can relate to them that we could never relate to them. Because God, in his sovereign goodness and grace, gives us the opportunity to redeem no matter what happens. And so God promised us in Christ, he's going to finish what he started in you. And so he tells his disciples that his life, his message, his mission had really taken root, truly taken root in these guys' lives. And he's praying about it and he's saying, thank you, God, that this has happened with my 11 disciples. And so he says in verse 9, I'm, I'm praying for them. He said, I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for those whom, again, here it is, you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, God, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in this world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. So Jesus says he's glorified. Look at at what he says. He says, I'm glorified in these disciples. These uneducated, common, simple men Jesus is glorified in. There's hope for us, right? If there's hope for the 11 and all that we've seen as we walk through this gospel, the, 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 all the mistakes and the things they missed their cue on and they, Peter puts his foot in his mouth again and again and again, these are common guys, yet Jesus says, I'm glorified in them. I, I'm, I'm glorified in their lives knowing, knowing what's going to happen the next few days. We don't think that way, do we? I think sometimes we forget who we are in Jesus. Because of Jesus, we're in Christ. Nothing, literally nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And I think sometimes pastors and preachers are hesitant to say that because they're afraid people will hear grace wrong. Like, i, I got to protect you from grace because Grace says, nothing you can do can separate you from the love of Christ. Past, present, and future sins, all forgiven in Christ. And so we as pastors, sometimes we're hesitant because we don't want you to hear that that's just, you got a license to do whatever you want to do. You just go out and live whatever you want to live. No, Paul's argument again and again, and we've talked about this over the last weeks, is that you're new in Christ. There's something been radically changed about you. And anyone who could just see grace 
as a license just to go out and live whatever way they want to. They need to fall back on verses like examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Because if there's this fundamental change to your spiritual DNA at the time of salvation, that he took you from the kingdom of darkness and put you in the kingdom of light, that he, the old man died and this new man and the Holy Spirit began to exist in your life and radically is changing you from the inside out, then you can't hear grace as a license to sin. It's a license to celebrate what Jesus did on the cross for us. That's what grace is. The grace is that Jesus came and he took his, our sin on him in a very public fashion, in front of the world. And so there's no reason for us to hide because he took it on for us. He was exposed publicly so we can live with confidence in his grace and his love. So grace is not something that we should be scared of. Grace is what propels us to live the Christian life. Because the truth is, we put sins in categories. And we think, I haven't done that one or this one or this one and that one. So I'm in pretty good shape. But if we're honest with ourselves, if we're truly honest, even on our best, best day, our minds and our hearts are still pulled in a million different directions that aren't focused on God. And anything that's done that's not for the glory of God is sin. And you see, even in your best day, you're still falling short and need a Savior. That's why we need grace. That's why we need Jesus. And so Jesus poured out his grace on these simple guys, and they got it. It sunk deep into their hearts and changed who they were. And God is doing the same thing in your life and in mine if you have Jesus Christ as your Savior. So in John's Gospel, and we hear this again and again in Jesus' prayer, Jesus prays, he says, I'm praying for them, but I'm not praying for the world. What does he mean by that? The world is anything and anyone who's opposed to God. He's not talking about the physical earth. He's talking about this system that's run by, under the authority of Satan that's opposed to God's purposes, opposed to what God is doing, and any people who are opposed to God. Now, we know that God loves the world. John 3, 16, he told us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. God loves all people. But here in this prayer, Jesus focuses in on his disciples. And he says, you don't belong to this world anymore. He says, I'm no longer in the world. I'm, I'm leaving this world. I won't be here physically, but I'm leaving you in this world. And so they're going to be left here in the world, but they're not of this world this world and it's all the things that it does and says for the glory of self, selfishness, for ultimately, which is for the glory of the evil one, all of these things, these are no longer part of who the disciple is. So he can stand and do his job, and he can stand and in spite of the distractions and the pulls and the things being dangled in his face, he can continue on in his mission because he understands who he is in Christ. And this world has no pull or control over them. And now we get in verse 11, we also see the very first specific thing that Jesus prays. So everything else has kind of been pointing up to this first prayer that he prays specifically for his disciples. And he says, 
he prays for the disciples' protection with the goal of unity. Look at verse, the second half of verse 11. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. It's interesting how much different Jesus prays than the way that we pray. You know, we pray for protection, but that protection rarely, if we're honest, rarely involves the protection of our community as a whole or even for our own spiritual protection. What do we pray? Most of the time, think about you and your family and your kids, what you teach them to pray. Protect us, which means don't let anything bad happen to me. Put a hedge of protection around me, right? I, like, don't let anything bad happen to our little bubble of, of, of my, the people I care about the most. Don't let anything bad come to us. And it's all focused mostly on the physical. It's, it's on our physical surroundings. But Jesus' prayer is totally different. He's praying for their protection so that they will be unified as one. Their unity is the purpose of being kept and protected. God desires for them to, to stay together, even with everything that will happen. And then after he ascends back into heaven and he sends the Holy Spirit, he needs them to stick together, not just physically or superficially, but we're talking about unified in the name of Jesus and in the name of God. Look down to verse 15. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So he doesn't pray that they are just removed from the world. He says the devil is the enemy, and along with this continual battle with this world and the flesh that draws us to these things, it's constant, it's intense, it's seductive, and he says Satan is targeting us, but in this, I want you to be as one, be unified. And he says, Father, keep them. God is keeping us. It's God's work who keeps us. I'm glad that, aren't you, think about your life, aren't you glad that it's not you that keeps yourself? And a lot of denominations, unfortunately, teach this heresy that says that God gives you salvation, now it's your job to keep salvation. And that's a lie from the devil. God gave us salvation through Christ. It was a gift, and Jesus is the one that intercedes on our behalf, and God keeps us. It's not our doing. R.C. Sproul says it this way. He says, we are secure not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. That's the confidence we have in Jesus and in grace, because God is holding us. He's not going to let us go. Regardless of the mistakes that you've made, are they worse than what the disciples made? Is it worse than Peter who curses and says, I don't know this guy. I don't know him. Get away. I don't know who he is. I'm not his disciple. Have you ever physically said that? I mean, you probably have acted that way. I have. But you've never said that probably. And so there's hope for us because God is the one that drew us and chose us, and he's the one that secures us. And so God is holding tightly to us because of Jesus Christ. And so that's his grace that flows out to us. And he says, it's in his name. He says, Father, keep them in your name. What does he mean by that? It could mean that it means in your name being by your name or by your power, but I think it means something different. I think it means this idea. Think about when Hurricane Michael was rolling in back a few years back. You probably chose somewhere really safe to run to, right? I hope so, right? Especially if you 
were, have a beach house, I doubt you said, hey, let's go and spend the weekend at Mexico Beach to keep an eye on our stuff while the storm rolls in. No, that would be crazy. You went to a, a safe location, even in our house, which I always underestimate things, right? I think, oh, no, this storm definitely won't hit Bainbridge, right? We're, we're going to be good. We're all right. But we did move our mattresses into the living room or the dining room, which are the furthest from the pine trees that could fall through our house, which our neighbor did have one fall through his house. So we went to a safe location for that event. And so I think this idea of in your name means that they are to stay in the name of Christ, in the name of God. They are found to find safety in his name. Now, what does that mean? All right, sometimes people throw that around like they think that using the name of God or the name of Jesus just in itself brings some kind of authority. But, but in the ancient times, and the, the first century people would recognize this clearly, that in somebody's name, that's not just about saying their name. The name represented their character, who they were. This person, this name said so much about who they were as a person. And so when we're kept in your name, it's the character of God. It's the attributes of God. It's all that God has done for us in Christ. That's what keeps us. And so in spite of the pressures of this world, the devil who's coming after them and the flesh, he says, stay in my name. Keep in my name. Unified together in my name. And in that you'll find safety. And then Jesus ends the request this way. Look at verse 11 again. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Again, deep spiritual unity is in view. What's in view is the dynamic between God the Father, God the Son, and it's God the Holy Spirit, even though he doesn't specifically say this here. It's the Trinity. The unity within the Trinity is the model for the unity that they were to have and we are to have. And so as they see God the Son working in perfect harmony with God the Father's will and desires, and he submits to the Father's will, and as we submit to the Spirit's will, we see that the Trinity is the the view for the deep spiritual unity that we are to have with one another. Our new birth brings us together in these things that are in common with one another more than anything else in this world. Like, so I don't care if you... And the other guy across the room are both Georgia football fans, and that kind of makes you in common. That doesn't, that's in no comparison, pales to our identity of who we are in Christ. When we came to Christ, God put us in unity as one with the body of Christ. And so, therefore, the most defining thing about our relationship shouldn't even be in our marriage, as we talked about in the marriage mentoring or the marriage life live video. The main thing about our marriage isn't the fact that we click or get along or we have a great relationship or we're good parents or we like to do all the same things. The main thing that should define our marriage is Jesus Christ and our love for him and our pursuit of him. And so the thing that defines our relationships the most should be our unity in Jesus, this deep spiritual unity. Now here at Grace, very practically, we try to help you form those kind of bonds and relationships through what we call K-groups. We put you together and help you organize, but just because you're in a K-group doesn't mean that you experience deep spiritual unity. Positionally, you do, but practically, for your sanctification, becoming more like Christ, it takes intentional effort, and it requires you to allow other people to be intrusive into your life. 
And if you're not tracking with God, if you don't understand what happened at salvation, you are not going to want that, okay? You're not. Why would anybody want their life to be examined by another person? And we can think of a million different reasons why I shouldn't let you into my life because you're no better than I am. All right? I've seen what you do. I've, I've seen that thing that you said, heard that thing you said. I watched the way you acted. You can't come in my life because you're not worthy. So we come up with all these reasons why not to let people into our life. But Jesus says that we have this deep spiritual unity with one another because we have this commonality, this shared life together, which is koinonia, where we get the name K-group, koinonia, shared life together. And so we put ourselves in a situation where we can open our lives up and be real and true with one another to help us on this mission. Because you know why? Most of the time, as I'm standing here trying to do the work of God and be focused, and I see something exciting happen, my tendency is to do this, all right? It's like, whoa, the action's out there. This is boring because they're all watching that, right? That's where it's happening. Let me turn around here and check this out. This is what's really fun. This is what's great. I'm missing out. I'm, I'm getting $15 an hour. I quit. I, I stop. I'm not working anymore. I want to enjoy the Super Bowl, right? I want to, I want to be in the moment, right? But you forget that you're in the world. You're in the stadium, but you're not of the stadium, all right? You're not of the stadium. Your job is something completely and totally different. And so community, unity helps us. It says, whoa, John, whoa, where are you going, bro? Come back here. Come back here to your job. Come back here to your mission, to your task. But I like it over there. Where we say this, I'm not over there. I'm, I'm still doing, I'm doing my job. I'm, I'm doing my job. I'm just, you know, I'm not doing as good as you, but I'm doing it. Look, I've had people in community, in Fight Club, for years, lie right to my face. It's like, why would you be in community and op- open yourself up, but yet hide your sin with one another? Why? Because we want to just do enough to make us feel better about ourselves and make everybody happy. We're people pleasers. Oh, he thinks I'm on board. But in reality, you're what the Scripture calls double-minded A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, James says. David says it this way in Psalm 86. He says, give me an undivided heart because sometimes our heart can be here and then we're over here and we just feel divided. And community helps us in that. If you're willing, you have to be willing to open yourself up. And the truth is, the New Testament knows nothing, zero, of an isolated Christ follower. There's no such thing as a disciple of Jesus in isolation. It doesn't exist. It's not scriptural. And so whether it be fight club, K-group, some sort of place where you're intentionally putting yourself with others in community where you are being held accountable and holding the other people accountable, that is the model of community. Because we like to think this is community and this is necessary to receive the preaching of the word and this creates relationships where we can have those other relationships But the truth is, nobody's speaking into your life today, except for the Word of God through this Scripture. But no other Christian, no other individual is going to pull you aside and say, hey, how you doing? I mean, that's probably not going to happen. It should happen more here, but that's not the intention, the purpose of this gathering. But you should have friends when you walk in that you're really checking in on them. But you know what? Just not once a week. You've been checking on them for the entire week because you're in community with one another. And so the New Testament, nothing of an isolated believer. And then verse 12 makes it clear, Jesus says that this oneness with, with, with him will, is, is what he desires, and this is where they find safety. Look what he says in verse 12. 
while I was with them, Jesus praying physically, I kept them in your name. So Jesus says, I kept them unified. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And he says, not one of them was lost. That was my job, Jesus says, when I was here, except, did Jesus fail? We'll talk about that in a second. Except for the son of destruction, that's Judas, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So Jesus' prayer is that God will keep his disciples now as he's leaving in the same way that he kept them as he was with them. And in order to make it clear that the loss of Judas was not based on incompetent protection, Jesus adds that this particular departure took place. Why? That the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus said it from the foundation of the earth. I mean, this was going to happen. This was known ahead of time, planned ahead of time. Judas knew what was going to happen, or he did, may not have known what happened. Jesus knew what was going to happen with Judas long before Judas even knew what was going to happen. And so he didn't lose Judas, but he prays for the protection of the eleven. And then verse 13 and 14, he says that it's Jesus' words within them, Jesus says, is what's going to keep them. Look at verse 13 and 14. But now I'm coming to you. So Jesus says, I'm coming to you, Father. Very soon I'm coming. And these things I speak in the world that they may have, what? My joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus' prayer assures them that joy is possible even in this world that hates and despises them. They hated Jesus, and they're going to hate them. Think about that, how hard it is to stay on mission and to have joy when people are hating you and despising you and treating you in a terrible way. Think, literally, think of a, an experience where somebody was Maybe not even for the name of Christ, but they were just horrible to you. And they treated you terrible. All right, Jesus says that even though horrible things happen and bad things happen and we're persecuted, that joy is possible because Jesus is keeping us in his word. He says, I have given them your word. The truths that Jesus taught them about himself, that is what's going to sustain them and not just help them get through the night, but it's going to allow them to have joy in the night, even as they look different from the world, as they act different from the world, as they get all these pressures from the world. And so the disciples draw hatred from the world because they're just different from the world. They're innately different than the world because of the word, the word of Jesus is within them, that they're what we call separated from the world. Now, when I grew up in church, you know what I thought as a kid, what separation meant? I, I thought that meant that physically we kind of wore different clothes, typically 10 or 15 years out of date, you know, from the, the world. And so that our hair had to be look different. And so it was all like physical things. I literally remember pastors preaching on men wearing pleated pants. And I remember like men, uh, guys preaching against uh, things like, you know, women can only wear skirts. They can't wear slacks. Um, hair couldn't touch your ear. That was all told to me as being worldly. That's worldliness, right? And, and it's interesting because as a kid, I don't remember ever hearing passages like Galatians 5 where it clearly differentiates between what is of the world and what is of the Spirit. Let's read that because it's a lot tougher than just changing shirts or getting a haircut. Look what it says. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorceries, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And, and this is not an exhaustive list. And he says things like these. And you know what else he says? He says it's evident. When you're tracking with Jesus, when Jesus is your goal, when Jesus is your love, he says the things of the flesh are going to be pretty evident to you, all right? If you're spending time with Jesus, you're praying, the, the fleshly things are going to be obvious. And then the, he says the things of the Spirit are love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These come from a, a, a different nature. The world only has a nature that embraces, what can I get from this? What's in it for me? What makes me feel better? But the Spirit makes us completely different. It allows us to live in this world, but not of this world, because we have a different set of values that have been placed in us by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit produces this fruit out of our lives. So out of our life comes love and joy and peace and patience, even in the midst of of difficulties and hard times and pressures. He says we can have joy in those moments, which is a fruit of the Spirit, because we're in Christ. And so as the disciples were mocked and hated and persecuted, and they experienced real and true suffering, they had joy in those moments. It's possible. As we read this prayer that Jesus is praying for them, we know that these prayers were answered. These prayers were answered, that these disciples went as I've said, and turn the world upside down as a result of Jesus' truth, not just being superficially around them or kind of within them, but it was who they were. It was deep down in them. And then he sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit took the words of Jesus and changed everything about them where they gave their life for Jesus Christ. You know, in Jewish times, when a rabbi would die, people didn't keep following the rabbi. He's a dead rabbi. When Jesus died, he rose again, and we continue to follow him now because he's God. He's Jesus Christ, Son of God. He's a living rabbi. And so we keep, we, the disciples continued to follow him, even as the world mocked them, and many didn't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and brings about greater faith in him. And then we see in verse 15 and 16 the second specific prayer request that Jesus prays for them. Look at verse 15 and 16. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus prays, secondly, that God will, take, will not take the disciples out of the world, that God will keep them from the evil one, even as they live in the world. You know, I think the desire of many Christians is just to get away from the world totally. I really do. I think that sometimes we get confused and we see definitely all the stuff that's happening in our world and it's awful, it's terrible, and it's sad, and it's, it's incredible the place where we've come to. And I think it's definitely scriptural to pray for Jesus to return and return quickly, but we can't quit being in the world but not of the world. If we don't go, I mean, if Jesus were to take his 11, hey guys, I'm taking you with me. I'm raising from the dead. I'm taking you with me, and we're all going away. What would happen to the world, right? But he left them there in order for him to change history and change the world and finish the mission. So it's a tension that we feel 
And churches feel it all the time. It's like, oh, I don't want to be in the world. I want to be away from the world. I'm going to get out of this place. It's terrible. And many Christians, they'll isolate themselves and pull away. And if you're doing sermon follow-up in K-group, this is a really good question. What does it mean to be in the world but not of the world? That's one that I think you should really explore. What does that look like? And I think about those of us who have jobs where we're out in the world all the time with people. You have such an opportunity, rather than going home and complaining about all the sin of the sinners around you, you should be praying for them and asking God to use you to be the light for them in your environment and where you're at. I think about our teachers in school and what you're facing every single day in these environments that you're in. You may be the only light that these kids ever see. You're the only Jesus, like I said, that they're ever going to see. And so you take them, take Jesus, be fully equipped, be prepared for your day. Because when you walk in, you know your mission field is right there in front of you. And so you are reminded that you're in this world, but you're not of this world. But he says, keep them. He prays, keep them from the evil one. Because it's so easy, it's so tempting to be drawn in to the sins of the world. Because at some level, we have to be honest, there are many things that are super appealing to us. Because the appetites that we have don't fully get sanctified when we come to Christ, right? They don't. It's a process. And he's going to pray about sanctification in a minute. So we're still, our hearts are still drawn to a lot of the same things. Maybe they look slightly different, but they're still drawn to the same root sins that the world is drawn to. And if you're in denial of that, I feel sorry for you because you're walking around with with some major spiritual pride and self-righteousness, which is the worst sin of them all. And so there's this humility of recognizing that you're susceptible. And that's why we need community. That's why we need unity. That's why we need to pray, keep me from the evil one. Because it'd be so easy for us to go into our mission field and we come home at the end of the day and our, our wife or our spouse or our husband says to us, how'd it go? And it was a good day. Um, you know, I, there was a lot of bad stuff going on, but you know, I didn't do any of that stuff, right? And it's not, it's not who I am. You know, I don't do that but yet totally neglect the mission. And so really have you accomplished what God has asked you to accomplish just because you've said, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. That's, that's what I'm doing, right? God has sent you in and said, look, the evil one's after you in this place. He's after you big time. He's given everything he can to destroy your life, but I'm putting you there. I've given you the Holy Spirit, and I'm praying, keep you from the evil one. To keep. Jesus uses that word a lot. This is the fourth time that he's used that because Satan was coming after them. And think about this. Think about Satan. He came specifically after Jesus. Satan's no idiot. He knew who Jesus was, of course. He knew where the battle was, and he came after Jesus. Now, Satan is not omnipresent, right? Because He can't be everywhere at all times like God can. And so where do you think after Jesus left, where do you think Satan spent his energies? He spent them directly on these 11. You know he did. He, he said, I don't have anything more important to do than these 11 guys that Jesus discipled and who he poured his word into. This is where the battle is, and he came after them. We'll never probably ever encounter Satan himself. We encounter demons and devils and the spiritual authorities and forces of this world, like Ephesians tells us. But to deal directly with Satan is what the disciples had to more than likely deal with. And so he assured them that Victory was possible if they stayed in God's name, unified together. And then the third thing he prays, God, Jesus asked God to sanctify the disciples in the truth. Verse 17, 
Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So to sanctify in this context means to dedicate a person for a holy task. To dedicate a person for a holy task. So he says, sanctify them in your truth. Let the gospel just cover them. Just allow them to be set apart for that one thing and that one thing only, which is to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus prayed that they would do that. They would see themselves sent into the world, he says. I'm sending you out there, but I'm sanctified you. You're set apart from the world. You're in the world, but you're set apart. You're different. You have the fruit of the Spirit being produced in you, not these desires that come from the world and the flesh and the devil. So sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. What does that tell us? You better be in the word. I say this a lot. The most dangerous Christian, the most dangerous Christian, one who goes to church, to K-group, knows all the stuff from the past, but isn't actively seeking God. Because they get, a, they get a certain level of authority and credibility within the community because, oh, that guy, he knows what he's talking about. Or that woman, she, you know, she knows. Yet there's no real, true, active pursuing of Jesus and being with Jesus and seeking Jesus. And so this life that, and this mission that he's called us to live we have this form of godliness, but we have no power on our lives. So sanctify them in your truth. Be in the word faithfully. And then verse 19, finish off with this verse. Jesus says, And for their sake, his disciples, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What he means there, he's pointing to the cross. He's saying, I'm setting myself apart for the cross. That's what I'm doing. I'm going to the cross, and he says, I'm sanctifying them in the same truth, the same gospel truth. Once he goes to the cross, he pays for our sin. He raises again, giving us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He says, I want them to be sanctified in that truth. So, the head knowledge today, God is holding tightly to you. If you're in Christ, God is holding tightly to you because of Jesus. I would dare say that you know who I'm talking about in here if you're running from God, if you're running away from truth and you're living your life however you want to live it, you hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit because you know God's pursuing you and you know the Holy Spirit lives within you. And that's great for us to remind us because we all need to hold to that truth that God's love doesn't fail us. But here's the question we need to ask ourselves. At this point in our sanctification, do we really want to be different? Because there's a lot of younger or less mature believers who you do want to have what would be called as one foot in the world and one foot in church or in Jesus, and you kind of want to play both. And you're not fulfilling your mission, and you're living your life contrary to what Jesus wants you to live. And so the question you need to ask yourself is, do I really want to be different? Do you? And here's what you need to do in response to, it, to this, regardless of how you answer that question. Embrace intrusive community. Embrace intrusive community. If you find yourself today saying, I'm not really sure how I feel, you know, that I really want to be different. I, I like the world's approval. I like selfish pleasure a lot. I like the creation more than the creator in a lot of ways. You need to run to community. You need to seek out a K-group community who will hold you accountable, and within that K-group community, maybe ask somebody you respect 
Ladies, ask a woman. Men, ask a man. Say, hey, will you disciple me? Will you help me in my, my struggle with the, the flesh and the world and the devil? I need you to come alongside of me and encourage me because I'm not doing so well. I'm not doing so good. I need your help. The evil one is coming after me, and I need accountability in this area. So embrace intrusive community. It'll be difficult. It'll be hard. It's going to be weird at first for you if you've never done it, but it's going to be the best thing as you're on your mission for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for our church that we truly will hear your prayer for your 11. God, that we truly will sanctify ourselves because your word sanctifies us. That help us to remember that you want us unified and that unity comes in your name. And God, I pray that we'll, pr- we'll truly pray for the protection of our body and for the unity of our body as we spread your gospel in Bainbridge and around this world, God. I pray you'll keep us from the evil one who is eager in his schemes and his devices and his traps to, to destroy our life, God. I pray for those right now who are really in the grips of sin and, and they really feel like they're trapped. And maybe it's not one of the big five sins, but God, it's, it's a sin of apathy. It's a sin of just going through the motions. It's a sin of just not caring anymore, God. I pray that they'll truly, truly enter into a, a intrusive community, that we'll be part of the body of Christ, and they'll allow the church to speak into their life, and they will speak into others' lives. And in that, we grow, even in our struggles. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.